Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. This episode is a follow-up to Dr. Nate Kittle's talk called Treating Patients with Opioid Use Disorder that he gave to third-year medical students at the Loyola University Stretch School of Medicine earlier this month. It was also an Ethics Grand Rounds talk and celebrated the 20th anniversary of Loyola's Neiswanger Institute for Bioethics and Healthcare Leadership. Well, thank you, Dr. Kittle, for joining us today. Um, We are very excited to have you. And to start off the interview, we always like to get a bit of background on our listeners. So can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Nate Kittle. I am a family medicine physician who works in Auburn, Washington. So it's about 20 miles south of Seattle. Um, I live in Seattle. And I graduated from Stritch School of Medicine in 2013, I believe, and then went to residency out here in the Seattle area for family medicine um, and have stayed out here. I work in a community health center called HealthPoint. um, And I'm also a residency faculty member for a family medicine residency program based out of Community Health Center, and it's called, it's got a long name, but it's the Wright Center for Graduate Medical Education National Family Medicine Residency Program. Um, wow, so it's that is a, a mouthful. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting model, um, which I'll tell you more about if you wanted to, but it's different, different sites all over the country um, that are under one umbrella for residency program, which is the only of its kind in the country, um, which is interesting. So hmm. but yeah, that's who I am. So. How did you, I'm curious about your pathway to addiction medicine. Like, how did you come to that? Was that uh, a strategy that you kind of had maybe tinkling in the back as you were going through med school? Or was it more of an emergent thing that happened later as opportunities arose? Yeah, um, it totally just kind of came about. Um, so it was not something that I knew much about um, as a medical student. And my residency program, the reason why I chose it was because they had a strong foundation in community health. Um, and as I learned, kind of diving more into community health addiction and mental illness is a big part of that. And so I got some basic training in residency. And that was right as the opioid epidemic, I think, was starting to take hold and was starting to just capture more of the media and more of the, yeah, just kind of more of the landscape um, in medicine. And Then I took a job at a community health center um, and where I was working, there were no physicians who were treating opioid use disorder specifically. And it was something, or maybe there was one other one, uh, but there were very few um, for the amount of patients that we have as well and needed um, treatment. And so I kind of just saw the need in the community and I had some basic training. um, And that's, you know, as a family medicine physician, I think that's kind of the gold standard. It's you go into a community, you kind of assess the needs and then you probably have some basic training and whatever those needs are. And then you just kind of tailor your practice a little bit to meet those needs. And so that's what I was able to do with addiction medicine. And I'm not, I'm currently actually going through the process of becoming board certified in addiction medicine. I'm not currently board certified, but there's a a practice pathway is what it's called. And so I just have to submit my hours and submit my activities and then um, take a test and I can become a, a board certified addiction medicine physician without doing a fellowship that goes away in 2021. So, um, so I'm currently just doing it because I can, and I think there's a need for it and it'll give me, um, kind of just some community recognition for the work that I've already been doing. Um, and hopefully allow me to get more funding and grants and things like that as well. Just as a follow-up in 2021, it's the pathway or the practice pathway is disappearing. Is that, uh, and is that, and from then on, is it only going to be uh, addiction medicine fellowships that'll be that'll have that role of treating yep exactly and so yeah so the practice pathway will go away but then people will have to do a one to two year fellowship to become board certified in addiction medicine and which i will say much of addiction medicine falls within the realm of primary care or even kind of general internal medicine care in the hospital and so i think one of the one of the things i i want to communicate to all my peers as well as that, you know, 
what I'm doing as a family medicine physician in a community health center is when I'm board certified is not going to be any different than what I'm currently doing. Um, and it falls under the scope of what I was trained to do and how I can treat patients. And so I think a lot of, a lot of the work of addiction medicine is really done in the primary care setting. And I think, you know, people make that argument for mental health as well. I think it's, you know, psychiatry, you know, they see the most severe, forget if it's like 15 to 20% of cases, but really psych is done in the community health setting and it's done in the primary care setting. And so I'd say it's probably similar for addiction medicine. Do you kind of just going back to your roots a little bit, do you feel like your bioethics training really impacted your decision to pursue kind of treating like addiction medicine, this type of patient population? Yeah, I think that the thing that bioethics did for me um, was that it helped give me a framework um, in approaching patients um, that I think in a foundation and how I approach patients. And so, you know, everyone at Loyola gets kind of a basic bioethics training, um, which I think is extremely useful going forward in medicine. But then I think doing the master's program, I think it gave me a little bit more hands-on knowledge and hand, kind of a deeper understanding of, you know, what does it really mean to, you know, do no harm and to not cause harm to patients and to, you know, really put the patient at the top of my treatment algorithms, if you will. And it kind of just allowed me to, you know, get some practical experience as well, um, going through kind of the bioethics consulting teams and things like that. And so I think it really, I think the skill that I learned was seeing the patient's perspective, um, which I think you know, gets a lot of lip service in medicine. Um, but I think it's really hard to actually pause and stop and ask the patients what they think, um, which I think is foundational to bioethics. And I would argue foundational to medicine. Um, we just don't do it enough because, you know, we get all of this training and we have all these algorithms and medications and treatments in our heads. But I think as a specialty of family medicine or even as just a whole kind of practice of medicine, you know, I don't think we, we pause enough. And I, I see that from my patients um, when I forget to pause. Um, some of them will call me out or I'll have a bad interaction. And I think that's really where bioethics, that's the skill I think that I've taken away um, that I use every day. And so I think it's allowed me to meet patients where they are, which I think is extremely important for addiction medicine so, yeah. as well. That's actually one of our questions that we wanted to ask later, um, but we can talk about it now. When you're talking about meeting patients where they are, how do you first maybe establish that relationship? How do you uh, build that rapport and build a level of comfort that you're able to have that two-way conversation to facilitate progress, all that, you know, all the things that need to happen in order to really make or tr to treat the patient? Yeah. Um, it's a skill that requires practice, I will say. Um, it's not something that I was naturally good at. You know, I think I've made a lot of mistakes along the ways with patients. And, you know, I think the main thing for me, especially when I think about any chronic disease, so this isn't just addiction. I view addiction as a chronic disease, which that comes with different layers attached to it. Um, but it's something that it's always going to be there. Um, it's something that people always have to continue to kind of work with. And I think that what I've learned is that the only way to treat chronic diseases for me and the patients that I'm working with um, is to get patient buy-in and to get them to come back. And my goal when I'm seeing a patient for the first time is to just with the chronic disease. And so this can be diabetes, this can be blood pressure, this can be obesity, this can be you know, a whole slew of things is really just to get them to feel comfortable enough to come back and see me. Um, because if they don't come back, then A, I can't really check in to see how they're doing as well. But then B, I think that the most important job that I have is not necessarily to put them on the right medicine. Um, the most important job I have is to walk with them through their treatment process. And, um, and so I think meeting people where they are with addiction, you know, I've learned to read the room. I've learned to see the person in front of me. Sometimes they're intoxicated. Sometimes they're in the midst of withdrawal. And so if that's the case, I make it as quick as possible and just say, hey, come back in a week. But sometimes they want to dive into some of their 
you know, past histories and traumas and things. And, you know, I, I let it go on a little bit, um, but, you know, I kind of just give the patient the space. Um, and that's kind of how I, I meet them where they are, I think. You know, I think so much of medicine can be physician driven, um, but I think we do a disservice to our patients when we're dictating care, especially in addiction um, and chronic disease management. I think that, you know, I try to find out what the goals are for the patient at the first visit. You know, not everyone's goal with diabetes is to, you know, lose 40 pounds and exercise every day for an hour. Um, same as someone's goals for addiction. I think everyone at the beginning says it's sobriety, um, but then over time, as I get to know people, it's, you know, maybe they don't want to be sober all the time. And, you know, there's reasons for that. And so I think it's really just thanking the patient for coming and being grateful that they are willing to make this big change in their life and opening some space to find out where they are to, so I know where to meet them, I guess, is how I would say it. Um, it's not, yeah, does that make sense? Sorry, I kind of just rambled yeah, a little no, bit, I think. But. No, that is, it's really, yeah, I, I, I understand exactly where you're coming from or what you're, what you're, you're talking about. Sorry, that wasn't very fluid, but that's okay. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I'm reminded of different topics that Josh and I and our peers in medical school have learned even so far about meeting patients where they are and journeying with them. And we've also learned in our patient-centered medicine class, the idea that patients are at different different journey, like different parts of their journey and different even mindsets when they come to see the physician and how regardless of what stage per se they're at in their movement towards change and improvement, that it's important that the doctor celebrate their decision to enact change regardless of what stage they're at because even just coming to see the doctor is an accomplishment. And I'm sure you know all too well, many patients put, put it off for way too long and that can create a lot of negative impacts on their health. So I really appreciate you saying, like taking the time to congratulate them on even just being there. Yeah, and I think there's very few specialties. There are definitely some where you don't really need to interact with the patient because you're a trauma surgeon and you gotta fix whatever it is, or you're an interventional cardiologist or neurologist and you have to go in and you know take out the clot or whatever it may be. Um, but you know, I think what I've learned is that patients really appreciate an attempt to find out where they're coming from. Um, and I think that goes, you know, I have many patients who I send to specialists all the time um, and the ones that they like and appreciate the most are the ones who take the time to understand them. Um, you know, and I, I work with a pretty low education level patient population. Half of them probably don't speak English. Um, and so I think there's a lot that goes on um, in those patient populations that um, if we just take the time to kind of understand where they're coming from, um, even just a minute or two at the beginning of a visit, you know, it goes a long way to get them to return to care. Um, and I think that's the, you know, that's ultimately kind of my goal with all of this is with addiction or other chronic diseases is really just to get that patient buy-in and that patient comfort level. And then we can kind of work with it over time. You know, some of it's a little bit more urgent, like with addiction. Um, if people are, you know, injecting drugs into their veins, then I'm trying to get them to stop that as soon as possible. Um, but, you know, but I think it, it's, it's a process. It's not something that is going to happen overnight for a lot of people. Can I ask a follow-up question to, and I think this is like a perfect segue to this. How do you check your biases? Like how do you, and, and the reason why I'm asking that is because, and I, I'm, I'm kind of already imagined the answer is just do it, right? But at the same time, we, we get a lot of training about implicit bias. And I even remember I was telling Emily when we were kind of generating our questions, I remember I was in a discussion, it was actually like an ecclesiastical, like a, a religious type discussion group of youth, and there was an orthopedic surgeon in the background, and it was revolving around like a what we see when we see homeless people, right? And some of the answers from the youth were like, oh, I see, you know, someone's son, someone's daughter, and someone else was like, oh, I see a, you know, more unfortunate version of me maybe, right? And then <laughs> this orthopedic surgeon, when it came around to him, he was like, I see drug addiction, and for me, I've never forgot that moment, right? And to to just how like that implicit bias, how do we check that 
right? I don't know what if it, maybe you have some special tips or anything like that. Oh, I mean, it's something that that I yeah continue to work on. To be honest, I think that um, what I've found in practice is that it's really really important to have a team because if your team is trusted um, and if your team is on the same page as you, then you can check each other, um, which I've actually found to be extremely helpful um, because it's the word implicit, you know, like it, it exists. It's not something that I'm going to get rid of necessarily. And so it's the first step is really just recognizing that bias and being okay with that. You know, I think that part of the problem in that I see with other people is that it's people fail to recognize the biases that they hold. And I think that leads to more detriment down the line. But no, I mean, I get super frustrated when I'm seeing patients who are continuing not to put A and B together and there's, you know, not succeeding in their life. And, you know, I have lots of thoughts and reasons why that may be. And I talk that out with my colleagues, you know, and I, we share that frustration together. We acknowledge it and then we move forward, you know, but I also think that, yeah, like it would be really hard to be an emergency room physician, which is why I didn't go into it. Um, it's because you're going to see the same 20 people a hundred times in the course of a year. And that's just really going to shape the way you view people who have addiction or people who have whatever it may be. Um, and so I think, you know, you just have to be in tune with yourself a little bit um, and have some self-reflection to be able to recognize um, that bias when it comes up, you know, and I would be a fool not to say that like, you know, the bias, I still don't have bias for against homeless people or against, you know, people of color in my community and things like that. You know, I think it's, um, it is inherent and foundational to our society. And I think that's something that slowly working to overcome. And I think having these conversations is extremely important to do that. Um, and then just really self-reflecting and being in touch with yourself and then having some people you can share that with, um, I think is the next step and work life, personal life, wherever it may be. I think it's extremely important in addiction to have a team working with me who I trust and who understand where I'm coming from and I understand where they're coming from and we can have open, honest conversations with each other because it's a lot of chaos and there's, you know, it's been people injecting in our bathroom at work. There's been like people throwing chairs in the, in the waiting room and, you know, and it's, are we going to label every homeless person coming in as someone who's going to do that? Like we shouldn't, but we do it sometimes. And so how do you talk about that? Um, so and how do you frame the discussion in a way that's productive and not harmful? Because I think there's a lot of harm that can be done with, you know, labeling people, you know, and that's why it's an opiate use disorder. It's a person with an opiate use disorder. It's not like, oh, the drug addict down the road. Um, that's where a lot of language, I think, comes into play as well. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's not easy. It's something every day I work on. And so it's, that's kind of how I've approached it anyway, so... Are there hard and fast rules that, like, if someone comes in displaying certain behaviors, you're like, okay, that's the line. We don't allow our patients to cross that. Yeah, I mean, the biggest one is violence. Um, you know, people can yell all they want, but if they're getting violent, um, we don't allow them to come back. Or if we know that someone's stolen something um, out of exam rooms and we catch it on them. I think that's one thing I think, and they don't admit it or something along those lines. You know, we are pretty forgiving because I think a lot of people have been harmed by the medical world that if they're willing to step foot in our door, that's a positive step and, you know, it's a step in the right direction. And so I think we try to be as lenient as possible. I mean, I have one patient who, I don't know how many times we've talked to him, way too many. Um, he's never been violent, so that's good. But now every time he comes to clinic, he calls our chemical dependency counselor that we have before he comes into the clinic and our chemical dependency counselor escorts him from the front door to the check-in, to the exam room. And then he won't leave him alone in the exam room, but he'll step out when I step in. Um, and then he'll go back in afterwards, do his part as the counselor and then walk him out of the building. Um, just because he's blown up at people too many times and people have been really turned off and put off by him. You know, he's harmless, um, but he's an angry young man. And I think he's got lots of reasons to be angry. Some of it's probably related to his drug use and 
others because of his untreated mental illness as well. Um, but, you know, we still, we're trying to accommodate when we can accommodate, um, but the hard and fast things we won't accommodate are violence. Um, and so I think, you know, even if he was someone throwing things, you know, he's never thrown anything, he's never done anything towards anyone except for yell really loud at them. So, and I think, you know, I don't work in just an addiction practice. And so I have other patients coming through who are being treated for other things. You know, you have kids there, you have pregnant people, you have all kinds of things that you would see in a primary care clinic. And so it's trying to be mindful of all of that. So. Mm-hmm. Well, that definitely sounds challenging at times to say the least. And um, I think that highlights even more so the importance of teamwork in your role that you've um, described. And of course, teamwork is important in medicine in general, but I can envision why it's especially important in the work that you do. As a follow-up to your um, explanation before, I'm wondering if you could describe the specific role of the chemical dependency counselor in your work setting. What do they do and how do they help you do your job better? Yeah, my role, I think I've learned um, since becoming a doctor. You know, I think when I was a medical student, I had this vision of I can do it all for people of, you know, I can be there, you know, I think for a while I was like, I'm going to become a psychologist so I can do the counseling myself. And I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to be double boarded in psychiatry so I can deal with that mental illness as well when it comes in the primary care setting, you know, but I think what I've learned over time is that my brain is only big enough for some things. um, And I am not as skilled as other people um, in certain parts of my practice. Um, And so I think, the chemical dependency counselor specifically. So addiction, there's some medicine that is helpful specifically for opiate use disorder, um, for a lot of other addictions. You know, the medicine helps people 30% of the time or 50% of the time, if I'm thinking about like nicotine or alcohol use disorders. Um, You know, the medication actually really isn't that useful. Really what needs to happen is that behavior change and that mental switch that needs to be flipped. Um, And sometimes it can flip really quickly, like a light switch. And other times it takes months and years and weeks to do it. Um, And so I think chemical dependency professionals role is to work with patients on behavior change in a more focused way. And, you know, the way as a physician in a primary care setting, I get 15 minutes with the patient. Um, And so that change takes longer than those 15 minutes. Um, And so I think having a team that's not just medical is really important because behavioral health specialists um, like the chemical dependency counselor or other psychologists or things like that, you know, they really have an expertise. They have extra training. They have extra practice than we have. Um, You know, I'm really good at brief interventions. I can talk to someone for a few minutes, but because my schedule is backed up because I don't have the time to really dive into what needs to be discussed. Um, I leave that to the people with the extra training. Um, and so that's, that's really where they come in. And it's, you know, it's, it was a challenge to find someone who thought similarly um, as well, because I think there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of ways to think about addiction, um, as we've kind of alluded to with some of the biases and things that aren't fruitful for recovery, um, and aren't fruitful for having people move forward. And so I think, you know, I view the chemical dependency professional who I work with as an extension of the care team. And arguably, I would say they're probably more important um, than the work that I'm doing, Um, just because, you know, the medicines I prescribe, I can do in 30 seconds, but they sit in the room for 20, 30 minutes working with people. So, Yeah, that's great that you have them as um, part of your network of seeing the patient. And it's great to hear how you view and appreciate the different roles of all these individuals and like the humble understanding that you can't do everything and you're not like expected to either. And that this work definitely requires a team. Yeah. And I would say like, I definitely wanted to do everything when I started. Um, Mm -hmm. I was just, that's why I went into family medicine. I wanted to do Mm -hmm. a little bit of everything, but I think I've learned and I failed along the way that, you know, it's just, yeah, just learning to understand that I can't do it all um, and that my life is so much better when I don't try to do it all either. Mm, um, that, that makes sense. <laughs> right. If I'm trying to do it all, then it's, you know, it's way too stressful and way takes way too much time and, you know, all those things. So I think mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah, the trusting, the trusting team is huge. That's for sure. Kind of uh, following up on that, 
how, what's, I mean, dealing with addiction can be a pretty heavy subject, right? And as a physician, how do you, how do you handle that, cope with that? I know you mentioned team where you can like sit down and have those important discussions about what's going on. Is there anything else that you found that's been beneficial? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so the team specifically I mentioned was more who I'm working with in the clinic. Um, and I think an extra layer to that is just, so I think the most impactful resources for me have been my colleagues in medicine. Um, and so it's a few people from medical school, um, but really it's mostly the residents who I spent three years with um, in residency. And I think the bonds that I built with them really sustain me through this because they're, you know, in medical school, we all go off and do different things. And so we kind of can relate, kind of can't relate, um, you know, after a few years of practice. But then the residents I went to training with, we all got the same training. We you know, spent innumerable hours together, whether or not we wanted to or not. And I think, you know, I know exactly the training they got. I know the, exactly the experiences they got because I was with them along the way. And so they are the people that, I mean, we have like a WhatsApp group that we text several times a week where it's, it's simply like, you know, sometimes it's like cute pictures of babies. Um, mm-hmm. Yesterday it was all protests, you know, and sometimes it's clinical questions and sometimes it's just like, Hey, I had this really tough case, like who's available to talk, you know? And so I think, finding that layer of support is really helpful. And I think having some medical people um, is important just because I think, you know, it's great to turn off your brain um, or talk to people who aren't medical, but it's really hard to explain the work we're doing um, to people who aren't medical. Um, And so I think having that support network and, you know, ultimately that's why I chose the residency program I did was because I thought it was going to attract the people who I would want to spend three years really intensely with. And that's, what happens, you know, I'm not super best friends with everyone, but I think we have a shared understanding of how to approach medicine and we have a good relationship where we can support each other. So I think that's, you know, the initial team is really good, but then I think that network of people who understand what you're going through is really helpful to just relate with and sit in the backyard and have a beer with or whatever it is. So. There was one other thing that I wanted to cycle back on. You talked about reducing harm with patients. What does that look like? And how do you, like when you're talking about reducing harm, are you like talking strategies of like tapering? And I know with the CDC, they recommend, I think it's like opioid contracts, things like that. Or what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that the best way to explain it is really viewing my physician as a physician, as making people as healthy as they can be. And health can be defined in different ways. You know, my vision of health for myself may look different than your vision of health for yourself. Um, Or someone using drugs, you know, their vision of health may look different now than it will hopefully in six months. But, you know, so for me, harm reduction is how do I make people healthy and reduce the harm that their disease is you know, inflicting on them. And so with opiate use disorder specifically with addiction, especially if you're injecting drugs, um, I think that, you know, it's trying to prevent overdoses um, is number one. Um, And so every patient of mine gets naloxone, Um, you know, they get a prescription, whether or not they pick it up, but that's up to them. But I ask them about it at every visit Um, because if they were to overdose, um, would they have it nearby or would someone be nearby who would be able to and use it for them? Um, or can they give it to their friends and their friends could use it or they can use it for their friends or things like that. Um, so that's one thing I do at every visit. Um, I have a safe injecting practices handout um, where, you know, talk about not sharing syringes and not sharing supplies as much as pe- possible. And If you're going to inject, you inject yourself. No one else is going to inject you because you maybe don't know where they got their supplies from or things like that. You know, and it's just being open and honest about infectious diseases passing back and forth. And so that's HIV um, and hepatitis C mainly. And, you know, just talking about, you know, if they know what that means and, you know, kind of assessing where they're at with that. Um, And so, you know, those are the kind of the big kind of, when I think about harm reduction, the kind of big buzzwords that come off. It's usually like safe injecting practices and syringe exchanges. More recently in a public health 
world, it's been fentanyl test strips and fentanyl testing of your supply. So it's because fentanyl is mostly what's killing people quickly, um, just because it's so much stronger than the heroin that people are used to injecting. And so, you know, there's places where you can get test strips and test your drugs before you inject them to make sure there's no fentanyl in them. Um, and so those are kind of the bigger things that I think of, um, you know, but I think harm reduction goes a long way is too, as far as like for all the women that I see, I talk about contraception, you know, if they want to have kids, great. Um, but if they don't, then as they go through recovery and as their body heals, um, they're going to become more fertile than they've been before. Because oftentimes if you're just using drugs all the time, you know, you're not eating as well, you're not sleeping as well. It's really not a, a place where a pregnancy is going to grow. But as you start to eat better and start to sleep more and things like that, like all of a sudden you could become pregnant and do you really want that in your life right now? And so, you know, it's one way to kind of reduce some burden and harm on people as well. And so it kind of expands a lot of things when I think about harm reduction. Um, but those are kind of the main ways that it plays out every day in practice. Yeah. So in the talk that you gave about opioid use disorders, you explained the idea that medicine is an art as well as a science, which is an idea Josh and I have already learned in med school as well. And um, you mentioned also in your talk various examples of how your work has led you to view medicine as an art as well as a science with difficult conversations that you have to have with patients and learning some of the like nuances of what opioid addiction actually looks like in practice separate from like what you'd read about in a book for it. And so we're wondering if you could just elaborate for us by what you exactly meant by medicine being an art as well as a science in your particular work setting. Yeah, and it does, it comes down to the conversations with people, um, as we kind of talked about before. Like, I think, you know, in school and in residency, we're taught the science behind medicine. And then the science is changing and changing slowly, but I'm not the one who's impacting science. Um, you know, I'm, it's my job to read about it and to understand it and to keep up to date with it. But it's something that, you know, I need to know what resources I need to look it up and to figure it out. And that's very much something that I can do. I think the art side of it is, you know, how I relate and interpret the science with the patients I'm working with in a lot of ways. And so it's, you know, it kind of goes back to our conversation about meeting people where they are and mm -hmm. having those conversations with patients around what their goals are for care and how to get them to come back into clinic and things like that. I think that's, that's the artful side, which, mm -hmm. you know, takes more, there's no algorithm for it. There's no randomized control study for it. There's no, um, you know, pharmacology best practice for it. Um, you know, I think it's mm -hmm. more, I am practicing those conversations day in and day out. And, you know, I've learned how to adjust my language and how to adjust my posture, how to congratulate patients, how to create a team of people that will be on the same page um, and we have different strengths and weaknesses and we kind of work with those strengths and weaknesses. And so there's no necessarily, there's no, um, there's no playbook for it, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, you know, I'm really the one who just has to keep practicing and trying things out. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's not as protocolized. Um, I think there's a lot of guidance on how to do these things. Uh, there's lots of books written about it, um, but it's not necessarily going to look the same for every patient either. Um, and I think that's what the artful side is trying to, how do you interpret the person in front of you and how do you work with the person in front of you? And you're taking the science and so you understand roughly what needs to be done, but then how do you apply that to, you know, the patient who really doesn't trust white males um, and I'm the one seeing them, you know, um, should I be in the room for more than 30 seconds or should I bring the chemical dependency counselor in who's a female, you know, or, mm -hmm. you know, should I, you know, how do I navigate those situations to help them heal? And that's, I think, the artful side of things, you know, especially in addiction too. I think, you know, I'm very much on the meet people where they are. Let's, you know, walk with them through their journey. That doesn't work for everyone either. You know, some people need the more paternalistic, like bring in your medicine every time you come. I'm going to count how many pills you have left and I'm only going to give you exact number of what you have. And if there's any missing, I'm going to kick you out of this program. Like, you know, and mm -hmm. so it's, 
how do you come up with a plan that meets and fits the patient? And I think that's the art side of things that, yeah, takes practice more than anything. There's, you can't read a book. You can't, you know, you can't um, memorize something. You just have to have to feel it out and go with it. I see. Yeah, that definitely sounds like something that would get a bit easier with time and you learn the ropes on really just with experience and the more patients you see, the more you would learn about it. So going off of that a bit, I think you've alluded um, to topics with my next question earlier in our discussion, but I wanted like to get your thoughts on why you think different patients have potentially such different trajectories and journeys towards improvement and healing from their opioid use disorders. You explained in your talk that some patients you see may be completely abstinent after just one meeting with you, while others will take a very long time, which I think further highlights the importance of journeying with patients and meeting them where they are. But based on what you've seen, why do you think patients with the same opioid use disorder from like a medical standpoint have such different like presentations in your clinic? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's why I was marching in the streets of Seattle yesterday. Um, I think there's a lot of systemic and institutionalized inequality. Um, you know, I think, yes, right now the hot button topics are the, you know, the color of our skin, but I think, you know, which is a huge one that underlies everything, but I think it, you know, it comes down to the broken homes when they were growing up. You know, I, the stories I hear from people is, you know, sometimes it's, I got into my parents' pain, got into my parents' medicine cabinet and started taking some pills, or I was in high school and I was at a party and someone gave me some pills and I realized that I felt really good when I took them. And so I kept trying to find them. Or sometimes it's, I injected drugs with my mom when I was 14, um, which, you know, if you're growing up in that setting versus kid who gets a high school education who is choosing to like continue to take some drugs because um, it's what people are doing at a party and they find that they become dependent on it and can't stop it uh, is a different story than someone who's growing up on the streets and you know their model of adulthood is someone who's selling their bodies and injecting drugs with them um, and so I think it's really just those social determinants that impact um, the recovery. Um, and I think that's, that's what I see. I think the people who are able to escape the environment in which they were using um, and have people who can support them are the people who generally do better faster. Um, you know, that's not the same all the time for everyone by any means. I think there's plenty of people who are living on the streets, injecting drugs today, who don't have any relationship with their family and parents who could probably come out of it tomorrow. Um, but I think it's just, it's more, the barrier is bigger um, if that's what you're trying to overcome. And so, you know, I think that if I think about the people who do really well, it's the people who have stable housing. It's the people who have family who love them in their life. Um, it's the people who have a motivator out, you know, not only mostly internal and so it's often people who you know are trying to become sober for their kids or trying to become sober to interact with their dying mother again or something along those lines that it's a little bit more time there's a bit more of a time pressure you know and I think my job in all of these situations is again to kind of assess what what people need um you know and this you know it's it's amazing with COVID actually I had a patient who was homeless who um, got hospitalized for something related. I think he was smoking meth and he couldn't breathe. And so he got hospitalized and um, was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. He got out and I was doing a phone visit with him. And I was like, where are you at right now? Um, he's like, man, COVID. He's like, I don't really like saying this, but it's been pretty amazing. Like, he's like, the state bought me this hotel. And I've been in this hotel room getting three meals a day for the last like two weeks. And he's like, my life's completely different right now. Like I'm currently sitting in a park, like eating my lunch, um, you know, and I'm not out on the streets trying to find where I'm going to go get my lunch or where I'm going to get my drugs. He's like, I've been taking my meds. I feel great. And he's like, I know COVID has been bad for a lot of people, but it's been great for me, you know? And so I think it's those types of people and those types of stories who perhaps may do better with some of that social support. And so I think that's what I see needs to improve um, to help people move more quickly through their recovery. It's if we can fix some of these social determinants, if we can, you know, start to change some of these underlying 
institutional and societal um, injustices, then I think that more people will move more quickly through that. And so, you know, I think the disease of despair is is what people have labeled addiction recently anyway. And I think there's a lot to that. So, so do you think that, would you be more of an, uh, in favor of like a model of what like Portugal is doing, for example, how, so for listeners who are not familiar, Portugal in the last couple of years, they had a rampant a drug problem and then they basically flipped their entire system and so that they removed criminalization they instead have taken the funding that was going into punishing individuals um, who were you know caught with possession of whatever substances um, and then switched it into providing like safe places for drug use everything has been decriminalized and then also providing or taking that money and putting it into like a, a funding situation for work for individuals. So like companies who would agree to take on the responsibility of having these individuals who are working through their issues could then be partially funded by this program. Of so like similar social programs just kind of all around. Is that what I'm kind of hearing maybe? Yeah. No, I mean, I think I'm a huge proponent. We don't criminalize people with A1Cs of 14, but we're <laughs> criminalizing people who are injecting drugs on the corner. You know, and I think in my mind, it's a, it's a, it's a chronic disease, you know? And so I think, should we criminalize the large people making, you know, the large dealers making a lot of money off of this? Yes. Like hundred percent. We need to slow down the flow of drugs it'll never be zero but like we need to go go after the people who are making the individual's lives miserable by supplying them the drugs are you talking like purdue pharma like i mean we could we can go there if you want to but um, (laughs) i'm happy to go there Um, but yes like purdue pharma but i also think the illicit trade as well Um, okay um yeah i mean and we both both yes but i do think that yeah i think Portugal, um, when last I read, which has been six months to a year ago, but like I think their their numbers on like Hep C and HIV had been decreased. There's maybe a little bit of increased crime in some places, but like so I think there's you know benefits on both sides. You, you just have to decide what you're going to give and take. You know, someone breaking into a car and stealing someone's phone they left on their seat, which I would argue they shouldn't have left their phone on the seat if they didn't want it to be taken. Yeah, I probably shouldn't argue that, but people still shouldn't break into cars. But, you know, that going up versus people dying of HIV and dying of overdoses and dying of, you know, hep C and liver failure. I think, you know, where what does our society value more? And so I would argue we should value human lives more than we should value our cell phones on our car seats. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, yeah, I, I, I think that I would be someone who would argue that we need more social programming and need more support for these social determinants because I do think that's what's keeping people from reaching their potential Um, and that's ultimately um, where the inequality in our country comes from you know Mm -hmm. I've been able to reach my potential and I'm still reaching it Um, you know and I think that that's something that you know I haven't struggled with homelessness I haven't struggled with addiction I haven't struggled with you know split household even you know and so it's like I've been I speak English as a first language. You know, there's lots, lots of determinants that I think can widen that gap um, for people. And I think the more we can sh- decrease that gap with some extra support that isn't criminalizing things um, would be something I'm all in favor for. So, yeah, I really like that. So before, when telling a story about a patient of yours and mentioning. COVID-19 that reminded me of a question we have regarding your practice now amid COVID-19. We're wondering how your day-to-day practice has changed recently with coronavirus and all the challenges that it's brought forth as compared to your work, say, even six months ago. Can you just paint a picture for our listeners about, um, about how things have changed perhaps? Yeah. And I think specifically related to addiction. So in general, like I see, you know, where I was seeing every patient in clinic, I'm now seeing 80% of them via phone or video and reserving the clinic visits for people who can safely come into the clinic and out in public. And 
you know, those who should come in, like kids who need vaccines and pregnant women who need to make sure that everything's growing, developing correctly. But other than that, it's been a lot of phone and video, which honestly, I'm really hoping transforms the way we provide care for addictions. You know, I think the group support and the peer support networks. So I think one thing that I've seen, so we have group visits in our clinic um, that's run by the chemical dependency counselor that I have. Um, And I think that's been a disservice that we're not able to provide those in-person connections for people who gain a lot from hearing stories of other people going through the same thing. You know, I think I can tell people about other people or, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's not the same as hearing from someone who's asking the same questions and experiencing the same things. And so I think that that piece of it, you know, there's been, you know, group visits over, you know, Zoom or Facebook Live or whatever it may be, there's people have found a way to try to do that, but I don't think that's the same. So I think that's one thing that I want to see us hopefully getting back to connections that way. But then I think, you know, the day-to-day work, the way I was trained to do addiction medicine was to hold people accountable um, for their disease. And I think in the midst of an epidemic in the last decade, we've learned that A, that doesn't really work for most people. And when we try to hold people accountable um, in very strict guidelines and we kick people out of our practices who aren't meeting those strict guidelines, then it's actually not productive for anyone because then they're just going to be out on the streets trying to find another physician to prescribe something for treatment, hopefully, or they'll be out on the streets just continuing to use, um, you know, and that looks different ways for different people. And so I think what COVID has done is that it's even loosened our protocols even more, uh, which, you know, it's, it's a little unsettling at times um, just because, you know, I'm used to before I give you a prescription of buprenorphine, which is the treatment that I'm giving you. I'm going to check your urine to make sure that you're taking it. A is probably the most important. And then B, to make sure that you're telling me the truth with the drugs you've used in the last week. You know, and we have a pretty lenient policy. You don't have to be completely sober to get the medicine from us. It's a very safe medicine. But what we want to watch for and what I'm looking for is A, are they taking the medicine? Um, Because if they're not taking it, then they're probably selling it and therefore I shouldn't prescribe it to you. And then B, are we just being open and honest about what's happening in your life? And so, you know, we do a urine drug screen to look for those two things. Um, And so in the last four months, I've done like three urine drug screens on my hundred patients that I have, you know, and that's three out of a total of like probably 300 visits. Um, and so I think it's, it's unsettling to do that, but I think it's ultimately more patient driven um, and more patient led um, just because it's really up to them. If they're going to lie to me about what's happening, that's not ultimately hurting me. You know, I'm still going to go home to my family at the end of the day and get paid every two weeks. And my life is not that bad or bad at all, but ultimately they're just going to be hurting themselves in the long run. And so it's, it's a little unsettling. And I think with my team, we've talked about it a lot, you know, when should we bring people in and, you know, we've come up with some loose guidelines, but because this all happened so quickly, they're, you know, the kind of national stance from the CDC and from SAMHSA and all these like an ASAM and the local chapters of all of these things for addiction medicine has really said like, get people to meds because if you don't get people to meds, they're going to die. And don't worry about holding people accountable right now, but try to meet them wherever they are and continue their therapy as long as you're comfortable with that. So it's been, yeah, it's been a little unsettling because that's not how we were taught to do things. Um, But I think it's hopefully ultimately going to help more people um, than harm them. Um, But I think it's too early, too early to tell. So So just a follow-up question that I have to this is, do you foresee like any consequences of the COVID-19 situation on how opioids um, are going to be addressed in our country? For example, I keep on thinking about how patients who are socially isolated and especially challenged from COVID um, may lead to patients' mental health suffering, like for instance, the geriatric population and they're isolated in their, in their nursing homes with visitors being prohibited um, from seeing them. Also like say patients who prior to COVID-19 starting had been in treatment, like really avid about improving, trying to address their opioid addiction, but then the virus started and that may have made their 
their treatment more difficult, like logistically and everything. So what are your thoughts on, on this? Yeah. I think the state of Washington where I'm at, um, sent out a like health bulletin a week or two ago. Um, that was their expected, um, crisis of mental health and substance use, um, in the next six months to a year that's going to come out from all this. And so I think, yeah, I mean, I think that for some of my patients, so some of my patients have been laid off, which actually is probably a good thing, um, because they can now focus on, you know, they're getting some unemployment pay and they can now focus on their addiction a little bit more. Um, and so instead of trying to juggle a job or two plus raising kids plus their addiction, um, you know, I have quite a few patients who are very functional, functional addicts is the word I want to use, but I shouldn't use that word. So functional people with use disorders <laughs> who you would never know that they were, you know, it's, a manager at a local Outbacks, um, you know, steakhouse. It's a, you know, someone who actually works in a jail. Um, mm-hmm. It's another patient who is, um, you know, and these are people who are not doing well in their opioid use disorder from my perspective. Um, but from the outside perspective, you'd never know they had it because they were, you know, holding a job, taking care of two or three kids um, and things like that. And so both of them have been let go um, and are actually thriving. They haven't used drugs in several weeks and, you know, it's the first time in probably months that that's happened. And so, so I think there's some, some people need that space and they thankfully have enough other support around them, I think, that, you know, it didn't drop them completely or tip them over the edge or anything like that. But I think there's other patients, as you mentioned, who are more isolated, who are, you know, we're just starting to put things together and then this happened and it sets them back three or four steps. And so I think um, for those patients, you know, I haven't seen, so I, I used to see... So the people who are stable are still generally stable. There's a few who've dropped off, but the people who are just beginning to stabilize or just beginning to understand their disease, um, you know, I would say there's a good five to 10 of them I haven't seen in a couple of months. Um, and I think that I'm assuming means that they are back in the throes of their addiction and they probably are struggling. I don't know because I haven't talked to them or seen them, um, but they were people who were, you know, homeless or had some transitional housing or some instability with that, who I just, yeah, I don't know where they're at. Um, and I think, you know, they they maybe worked at a gas station or picked up odd construction jobs here or there, but now they are just off the radar. And so I'm assuming that it's because of COVID, you know, I'm assuming that they are struggling to get by day to day again and probably using as much as they were using six to eight to 10 months ago. Um, but I think there's no way to know. So I think it's, mm-hmm. yeah, those are kind of the, the two sides of the coin that I've seen where it's actually given people a little bit of a break. Um, but those are the people who have less of those social determinants as we talked about before. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the people who are already struggling to show up once a week to come to clinic and get their meds and engage, you know, I've seen a lot of them struggle even more as well. So, but yeah, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's a larger political discussion too about what is the safe speed to reopen cities and states and countries and like the economic costs of this disease, you know, will have its effects felt in the next, you know, couple of years. Um, It's not something we're seeing acutely, like we are people dying all around us of COVID. And so I think that's, you know, it's balancing those two from a public health and policy standpoint, I think is really fascinating. And I don't have a right answer, but we have a lot of case studies because every state's doing it a little bit differently. So, um, so I think in five to 10 years, we'll look back and be like, huh, we should have done it like Iowa did it or, oh, we should have done it like, you know, wherever. So, um, yeah. Maybe as a follow-up to this, this is more of just like a thought experiment, but, um, if we could make you like the czar for a day, give you a magic wand, anything you say goes, like what changes would you want to see? And, and maybe we can break this down. Um, like what changes would you want to see for the lay population? What changes would you want to see at a medical student level? Uh, and then maybe like a provider level and then maybe just as like a systemic level. So, and we can review that if, because I know there was a yeah, lot to that question. Myself, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think, so general population level, it's easy. Um, and that's, you know, lay person slash, um, you know, probably societal level is just the changing the script around chronic diseases and addiction specifically, um, and just trying to take away some of that bias, um, I think is, 
would go a long, long way. Um, and so I think it's, you know, I have conversations with family members and patients all the time that, you know, people feel discriminated against. They feel shut out of people's lives. They feel um, like ashamed of what they're doing. And I think that you're not going to heal when you feel those things. And so I think from a society and a general population level, um, addiction isn't the moral failing. Addiction is a way to deal with, you know, some crap that's happened in your life. Um, that's an unhealthy way of dealing with it, you know, and like, ideally, we'd all have support and friends and counseling and medication available to us to deal with the crap that we deal with throughout life. Um, but the reality is a lot of people don't have any of that. And that's where addiction comes in, I think. Um, and so that's, that's kind of that, that piece of it is just how do we rewrite the scripts of addiction? Um, and, you know, it's not someone who is a bad person, um, who is using a drug to feel good. It is someone who is just like me or you, who is caught up in whatever they're caught up in. They tried a substance that made them feel pretty good and now they can't stop using that substance because they get really sick when they stop. Um, and they don't really want to use that substance. Um, or maybe they do sometimes because it makes them feel good um, because their life is crap otherwise. Um, and so I think it's balancing that would be really great um, from a societal standpoint. And I think that's the most important thing is how do we get rid of that bias um, that our country has not figured out for anything, um, <laughs> unfortunately. And then I think from a medical student lens, you know, I think, yeah, just educating is really where it starts. And I think that's medical schools um, that need to take the lead. Uh, well, that's not true. I think medical schools take too long to change. Um, I think <laughs> that medical students need to take the lead on that. Um, you know, and I think if we, if medical students value um, addiction education, they can ask for it and they can get it. Um, and so I think that's the one thing I would ask for. And I think, you know, all the national societies and people are saying we need to educate more around addiction. But I think, you know, I would also be careful because I think a lot of the so-called experts of addiction medicine are, have been around for 30, 40, 50 years and kind of came to addiction medicine in a different environment as well. And so I get a little nervous sometimes talking with some of my older colleagues around how they view patients and how they view treatment and how they view addiction. And, you know, I think the societies have been very clear that addiction is a chronic disease and, you know, how to talk about that and work with that. I think there's just a lot of paternalism um, in medicine. And I think from a medical student perspective, it's, you know, you need to ask for the education because I think the school is not going to give it to you. Um, and that's been my experience with medical education is that, you know, there's certain guidelines that schools have to follow. There's certain guidelines that residencies have to follow. And if residents or students want anything different, you have to make it yourself um, because those guidelines are pretty, pretty rigid. Um, and so you have to find the people who are going to support you working outside those guidelines or working alongside those guidelines or whatever it is. Um, and that's for anything um, in medicine. I think race in medicine is another thing that is being really student driven and student led, um, which has been great to see. Um, and I mean, at the example of Loyola with the DACA students and things, you know, that was all student-led and student-driven. And so you get support from some people, um, but really it's the students who are making the waves. And so um, so that that's kind of my, probably my wish there is that those who feel that it's important would, you know, try to find the time to make it happen. You know, I think as tests go away and the pass-fail mentality comes more into play in medical education, I think that hopefully people will be able to follow the passions a little bit more um, and not be sitting behind books all the time. And then I think from the medical community, I think it's probably a combination of those, to be honest. Um, I think it's, you know, it's bias is huge. I think the amount of patients I see who have had negative experiences, whether it's an emergency room or primary care physician or in the hospital with a rounding team or cardi cardiologist who's going to talk to them about their valves or things like that. You know, I think that that's been, um, you know, it's breaking down, I think, as leaders in medicine, um, we need to, we need to be the ones that flip the script for the public. Um, and so I think with, when it comes to addiction, like all of the medical community needs to be on the same page. 
um, with how we are viewing addiction as a chronic disease and something that people are at varying stages of change um, for. And we just need to kind of match our language and our approach um, to that philosophy um, and really just value the human. Because um, I think that that's the piece that gets removed from it. And that's the importance of that person first language um, of, you know, it's, I'm not going to go see the patient with, you know, I'm not going to go see the COPD exacerbation in room six. It's I'm going to go see Miss so-and-so who's in room six or whatever it is. So who is here for a COPD exacerbation. And I know that's something I learned at Loyola. And it's um, something that I'm hopeful will continue to make waves as generations come and go. And I think just general big picture, like policy wise, I think it's, yeah, I think it meeting people where they are is how I generally couch it. Um, but I think it's what I think fundamental to that statement is that we're all humans who come to the world and to our lives with different experiences and understanding that we're not all in the same place and we're not all in the same bucket. And so that's where safe consumption sites comes in. That's where needle exchanges come in. That's where decriminalization of drugs comes in. I mean, I remember I was, I was actually a medical student at Loyola in the emergency room, or maybe I was doing trauma surgery. Um, I think it was trauma. Um, and someone came in with a gunshot wound and you know, when trauma, when they come in, you strip them down, you do the fast. Well, then we were doing fast exams. I think now you just CT everyone. Um, but, you know, doing doing different things and, you know, a bag of drugs fell out of the guy's underwear um, as the nurse was cutting them off of him. And, you know, she quickly picked it off the ground and threw it in the trash. You know, I kind of just looked at her because um, she saw me see her do this. Um, you know, and the police were in the room because it was a gunshot wound and things like that. And then afterwards she came up to me and she was like, She's like, I saw you, saw you watch me um, throw the drugs away. He already has enough problems. He doesn't need more, you know? And so like, that was her approach. And it's like, knowing that if this guy has drugs on him, then there might be more charges and things like that. He's already been shot. Like who the hell cares about a small drug charge, you know? And so I think that's, that was her perspective. And I think that's the mentality we need to shift a little bit in our society. And I wish that we would have that approach to addiction and drugs is people are already struggling with a lot. Like if they're using, they are struggling. And so Let's help them instead of throw them in jail or whatever it may be. So yeah, um, create systems that keep them in that cycle of right. Yeah, and it's people are going to go back and forth, and that's super frustrating. Um, but it's the reality of anything when it's mental health and chronic disease related. Is that you're going to have a few model people, um, but the majority of people are going to pop in and out of of good health. And so, how do you support that? Yeah. So. So I think now we um, will start wrapping up our discussion, but before we do, we're just wondering, separate from everything you've talked about so far, um, are there any like major takeaways you have for our listeners? Um, anything else you'd like to add and leave with them after you know our conversation ends, lasting, lasting thoughts for them? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the last question was a great, great, great <laughs> way to share a lot of those thoughts. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, but if there's anything else you'd like to add, but if not, that's great. That's yeah, good. Too. No, I mean, I think in general, I think it's as a medical community, we have a lot of power to change an approach to an addiction medicine. And I think that that's, you know, it starts with the students and it starts with those interested in medicine. And, you know, I think more and more of us have a personal experience with addiction, whether it's family or friends or, um, you know, and, I think being open and honest about our feelings um, related to addiction is extremely important. Um, but then I think also, you know, having the support and the people in place to to not not view it as that moral failing, which our society often does. Um, and so, just change the rhetoric is really where it comes down to. Um, I think the rhetoric will lead to humanization of the disease we're able to change that rhetoric so and i think that's that's the important part it's really hard to look a human in the eye and tell them that they should be living on the streets and dying of an overdose and so i think if you're talking systemically about you know these people who are injecting drugs and living on the streets that's different than having that personal interaction and understanding that those are human beings as well so i think that's fundamental to the practice of medicine so great We want to thank you for doing this. This was awesome. I know I learned a lot. I felt like um, this was very beneficial for me uh, just going forward. I know I've now set some goals to 
to change some things, some ways to help impact the system. So I'm grateful for this. This was cool. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really informative and I think inspired a lot of thoughts for our listeners on how they can get involved and the importance of working to address these these systemic issues and knowing that it's not the patient's fault when they come into clinic presenting in, in the you know ways you see them and medicine is not just about the science but so many other factors contribute contribute to the patient's problems that that they come in with yeah and i think that's you know it's never going to go away um unfortunately and hopefully it'll get a little bit better um but right you know and i think it's um I think we all have some responsibility to improve our lives, um, but I think we have to give people a chance. That's how I view it. Um, and you know, I can improve my life because I'm sitting in a house with a car and a family, and like life is good. But I can't necessarily expect the same of everyone I see in clinic. So because they don't have any of those things um, that I just mentioned. So yeah, and that's that's where addiction comes in, and that's you know it's. When I get stressed, I eat a bowl of ice cream. Um, when other people get stressed, <laughs> they, you know, drink a beer or take a pain pill, you know. And so it's, it's there's, the ha- the actions are are the rooted in the same thing, um, in my mind. Um, some are just a little bit healthier than others, um, arguably. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. This was awesome. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. Really interesting. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.